Today's Talent Talk radio show is brought to you by People G2, a company dedicated to helping you with people-related decisions by providing access to the best human capital, due diligence, and background checks on prospective candidates, business partners, tenants, and much more. They've been recently included on the Inc. 5000 list of the fastest-growing privately-owned companies, and they've been recognized as well as one of the best places to work by the Orange County Business Journal. To learn more about People G2 and all that they have to offer, please visit them online at www.peopleg2. That's People G2. You can also follow them on Facebook, and their Twitter handle is at People G2. And with that, let's get back to our host, Chris Dyer, and his next guest. Welcome back to the Talent Talk radio show. Just a quick reminder, you can subscribe to the podcast on this show or listen to past shows by visiting octalkradio.net and clicking on the Shows tab and, of course, clicking on Talent Talk. In the short time this show has now existed, we've amassed a huge following on iTunes as well as live listeners, and we really appreciate everyone who's new to the show and those who keep coming back. My next guest is Gary Goltz. Don't forget to tweet your questions live right now for Gary. Let's try to stump them if we can by sending them to at peopleg2, hashtag talent talk. Without further ado, Gary, welcome to the show. Hey, Chris. Great to be on. Tell us about yourself and your uh, work history. I've been uh, in business since the 70s, mostly in the healthcare industry. Lots of the time was devoted to the home health care industry, specifically where I was an executive for the forerunner of what's become Apria, the largest uh, durable medical and home IV therapy company in the country, and had my own business. And after I sold that particular uh, business, I uh, started doing consulting, and I've been doing consulting ever since 95. So, you know, you have such an extensive background and past in, in healthcare. How did that happen? How did you get into that industry? I could give you a uh, extensive, uh, very exciting story, but the, the short and honest answer was I sent a resume into a job for a home medical equipment company, and they hired me. You, you got your shot. Sometimes that's the, the way people break in, is they just get a shot in a particular industry and they flourish. But I will say one, I will add one caveat. The reason I got hired back in 1977, a lot of people think the uh, recent recession, depression, or whatever you want to call it in the last five years is the only one we've had since the 20s. But, you know, those of you who lived as long as I have, you remember the 70s uh, weren't that good either, especially after Nixon resigned. There were uh, PhDs pumping gas. It wasn't uncommon. The company that I applied for probably had several hundred resumes, including people with MBAs and 20 years experience. But I can remember it clearly that the uh, executive who called me up, who was uh, one of the senior people in the organization said he liked the fact that I had a black belt in judo and uh, said that that looked like a persevering quality that he could relate to since he was an Eagle Scout. So I, 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 will, I will tell you that the judo is what got me in the door. Well, you know, so maybe I've heard that before. Sometimes those personal things that you write on your resume can really connect with the other person and be a reason that you get that call back, that next you know, chance to talk with someone or even the job. Um, if you're not 
careful, sometimes those can be ones that get knocked out as well. Uh, you don't want to write everything on there, but I think some of those really uh, big accomplishments in your life that maybe don't necessarily have exactly what to do with, with the job can, can be endearing, like you mentioned. The amount of discipline and hard work you probably had to put in to get that black belt was something that they recognized. Well, again, he, he saw the analogy between the black belt on judo and his own uh, youthful endeavor to become an Eagle Scout. And, you know, I think it's interesting to hear you comment about how how people get their foot in the door, being you run People G2, a background screening company, which is often looked upon as the way to keep people out of the door. But I think in reality, you know, in finding good candidates, the background screening process and evaluating the person's character is all part of how you build a good company. Sure. And yeah, getting the right person in the door is what we really try to do. It's not about keeping certain people out. It's about finding the right person you should stay in and stay in for a long time. So, and and I know, think, you know, from the standpoint of a uh, potential candidate, you know, I, I, you really want to build a good story. You know, and, 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 you know, all those things that teachers told you in school that, uh, this won't look good when you grow up or you don't want this on your record. You know, it used to, it used to be like a fear tactic, but you know, there's a lot of truth to that. I mean, people really have to think about, you know, what, what they're leaving behind and, uh, the story it tells. And, you know, in the end, you, you want your resume and your, uh, you know, business uh, bio to read like a, uh, a a regular success story, and, and you know, and, and and try to keep that in mind as you're uh, plotting along. Speaking of success stories, in case people don't know, uh, Gary here has built several companies from scratch. He's also turned around several companies that were really in deep trouble. So I'm wondering if you can really tell our listeners what are some of the key things that you've learned in this process. Well, you know, I'm glad you asked me that question because it actually came up a couple weeks ago when I was having lunch with a old friend of mine, and uh, I jotted down the things I, I, I thought of off the top of my head so I can be more succinct on your radio show. But the first and foremost one is what I would call stick-to-itiveness. Stick-to-itiveness is the ability to see something through to go the extra mile, all the cliches that come with it, uh, you know, there, there's just not a lot of that anymore. And and, and people, you know, uh, tend to uh, start something and just never finish it. And, uh, you know, or they set a goal, and then when it becomes a little too uh, difficult to reach the goal, they're easily distracted and go on to something else. And, you know, they, they, they sort of make that a pattern of uh, not completing things. Uh, quite the opposite. People who know me will say, uh, you know, when I, when I start something, I finish it. When I, when I tell somebody I'm going to do something, I do it. And, uh, you know, I'm very proud that that's my reputation. But, you know, it, it comes down to just that simple term, stick to and it means exactly what it says. Well, great. Uh, you, would you like me to continue with some others? Yeah, if you have a few others in there that you think are I have more than a few others, them. Chris. You know me by now. The second one I, I'd have to put up there is uh, my dad's favorite uh, saying. And my dad was a ad man for several radio stations before he decided to go into the public relations business and eventually he was a person who put together 
the news circulars for like shopping centers, you know, where you get the coupons and everything, you know, they they still have them. The penny saver would be a good example. A lot of it's now moved to online and, uh, you know, uh, apps like Yelp and things like that. But in any case, for my dad to build a successful business, he told me the key ingredient comes down to making the calls. And you can say it a lot of different ways, showing up, getting out there. But, you know, if you don't go out and make calls, you know, you just won't succeed in your business. And that takes a huge amount of tenacity, discipline, and, again, that old saying I used earlier, stick to You have to go out and, and, and you have to be capable of dealing with rejection. Uh, you can't be shy about it. You can't, you can't uh, you know, worry about offending people. I mean, you want to be assertive. You don't want to be overly aggressive. But, you know, realizing that uh, when you put yourself out there, you might not always uh, get what you want in terms of uh, the perfect reaction and the welcome. But, you know, if you do it often enough, eventually you will you will succeed. And uh, you just have to keep reminding yourself to make so, those calls. So for the, for the interest of time, I, I'm going to guess that Gary's got a few pearls of wisdom. So let's review. We've got stick-to-itiveness. We've got make the calls. And maybe you can just give me kind of the little one-liner for the other ones that you have. Maybe we'll dive into one more of them. What are some of the other kind of little, um, little pearls? Networking. Networking, you know, okay. Before, before uh, there was LinkedIn and Facebook and uh, every other social media networking outlet, networking. I was already breakfast uh, event or a you're on LinkedIn. It's networking. compulsive networker. Yeah, compulsive networking. Okay, what was the next one? Next one would be uh, following up. I, I, you know, I've seen a lot of good salespeople in my lifetime who, uh, you know, are, make a very good impression, good rapport. But then when they, you know, say they're going to do something or uh, somebody asks them to get back to them, they don't do it. You know, I make a point to always get back to people uh, either in writing or a phone call. In fact, lots of times what I'll do in a sales call is get the person to to purposely get me to ask to, to have to follow up so I can prove to them how relentless I am about follow up. Mm-hmm. She said, "Let's follow the cup." The next one I have on my list is, uh, and this is an important one: have an exit strategy. No matter what your endeavor is, you know, I started several businesses, and before I even started the business, I already had several ideas on how I'd like to exit the business. And, uh, you know, if you, you know, don't have an exit strategy, you really have no end goal in mind. And, you know, things can just perpetuate and you're just kind of living for, uh, to be affected by the environment as opposed to, you know, having a definitive plan or a direction, a key goal in mind. It's what I call turning bad situations into good ones. The best example I can give you, I am going to talk a little bit on this one is my judo instructor, who was just a great person, a Korean immigrant, hardly could speak English, built his own uh, school, put his kids through college, had a charming personality, was a champion. One time, I remember he was pulled over when we were coming back from a a county swimming pool during a, a camp he had at his dojo, and he got pulled over for making an illegal U-turn. 
when the cop came up to the door and said to him, can I see your license? Well, he had his judo pants on, and we don't have pockets on judo pants, so he had to go back to the trunk to get his wallet. He opened up the trunk, and there were about six of us in the car, young boys waiting to go back and practice, and he was back there talking to the two officers for an ex extraordinarily long time. And once in a while, I'd see an arm or a leg or hear his voice. Then finally, the trunk's shut, and he got back in the car and started to drive away. So I said, Mr. Kim, what happened? Did he give you a ticket? Mr. Kim said, no, 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 he didn't give me a ticket. And I said, why not? And he says, well, when I opened the trunk, he saw my judo uniforms, and he started asking me what I do, and I told him about the judo, and he said, that's real important for police work, so we were talking about judo, and, you know, he said, have a nice day, be more careful. And I said, well, geez, that's really great. Look how Mr. Kim turned that around. Well, if you think that was enough, that night at the judo practice, when we were lining up to start the class, I saw the door open up and two gentlemen walk in to sign up. And you know who they were? The two policemen that pulled them over. Now, if that's not turning a bad situation into a good one, I can't think of a better example. Yeah, and that's where I learned to do like, that. Uh, always be selling. So, yes. you know, to kind of, those are some really, really great uh, things that you've given to the listeners. But I'm, I'm wondering if we can kind of turn this down a little bit into real specifically, you know, how you grew these companies. Because we talk about talent here on the radio shows, what positions in those organizations that you you are part of are really the most critical? You know, the companies I like to work for and have started and built have always been, you know, aggressive on the grow. So, you know, sales has always been king. But, you know, as companies get to be more in the harvest mode, you know, they may be needing more somebody along the lines of operations, uh, financial, IT. But, you know, again... Those are usually the kind of companies for me that I get bored with because at that stage, they're usually in the harvest mode. So for me, sales has always been uh, top of the list. And do you think that's the hardest position to fill in the organization? Yeah, I, I, I do. You know, I, I like what my one marketing professor said at the Pepperdine PKE program. He, of course, he was a marketing person, so he was a little biased like me. But he said, after sales, the rest is all overhead. Well, that's you definitely sitting on the sales side of the table then. <laughs> exactly. As these organizations grew that you were a part of, do you think that you changed as a leader? Absolutely. You, uh, you know, you you have to be evolving as a leader constantly. I mean, you know, I I like Waterman's book on uh, the renewal factor, where you know he talks about how he would go to Hawaii every year to this one resort. And it was the only place he would always go back to consistently for a vacation. Every place else he would do a different different location, different place to go to. But he liked this one, and he was talking to the owner, and he told him, you know what I like about your, your hotel, your resort, is that you never change. And then the owner told him, actually, uh, we change all the time. And the reason you don't notice the change is because we're keeping up on things. If we didn't do that, you would notice that things were dated, the wallpaper, the, the televisions, the, the decor, uh, everything about it. He said, so the fact that you don't notice the change is because we're making the subtle changes to keep renewing all the time. And that's what I think a leader has to do, is to be in a constant state of renewal. Well, maybe certainly the heart of what they were doing or the what they were delivering that person at that resort may not have changed, but they made sure that the things they needed to do were always, you know, updated and fresh and everything. So I can kind of get into a, you know, if your core, you stay the same, 
but the things around you are always improving and getting better. I think as, as leaders, it's kind of the opposite. Uh, we have to be changing and growing as our organizations are as well, so we can be the right person at the right time uh, for the organization. So it doesn't outpace us, it doesn't outgrow us, and that we don't start to become uh, the one getting led uh, instead of being the, the leaders within that organization. Absolutely. I think a good way of putting it. Yeah, and I, you kind of brought up you know, something about passion there with, with that example of the resort. You know, do you think that, especially for leaders, but even across the board for all employees, does loving what you do help drive your success? Does loving what you do help drive your success? Well, you have to love what you do. I mean, if you don't love what you do, that'll come across. So, you know, to me, uh, you know, work is a major part of your life. You know, having a passion is is all part of how you are successful as a leader. If you don't have a love of what you're doing, then, then why bother doing it? It amazes me how many people go through their lives maybe choosing a little bit more money or some other thing, and that the closer job or where they live, but they don't really love what they're doing. And they, they choose these other things over that, and they end up being so unhappy uh, and wonder why uh, their lives aren't as good as somebody else and take any person in their life. And it usually comes down to that one single thing is, are they doing something that they love? And I'm guessing the world's not perfect. There are people who may be put in a position where doing what they love wouldn't get paid $3 an hour versus what they could get paid doing something else. But for most part, I think people can find those opportunities to really have that passion and success by doing what they love. And it kind of, you know, it sounds a little bit like you've turned what you love with, with healthcare, and I know you're also very, very involved with uh, the Judo uh, Association of America, and that's a big passion of yours, and, and something that really drives you as well. Let's talk about the the whole concept of how you how you become fond of something or love something. I mean, it doesn't happen overnight. You know, part of the process. Uh, you know, when I when I start a company or or even took the first job, is to uh, you know turn it into something that I can relate to. In judo, you know, the game is to throw the opponent for a full point and win. And you know, when I would look at my early job as a salesperson for the home medical equipment company. You know, I would kind of categorize the accounts, and, and, you know, if I turned over the biggest one that was like an epon, a, a full-point throw in judo, and, you know, pretty soon I was just playing the same game that I'm used to. So, you know, sometimes you have to trick your mind into making yourself love something. But, you know, it's, it's not that difficult, and it takes a little creativity. It's that type of approach where you can you can break something down in its components parts and, uh, you know, come up with a, a scheme that, that works for you and, and approach, you know, any, any endeavor in, in a similar way. And if you can't make that endeavor fit that pattern, then it's time to take a look at what you're doing and maybe say I'm in the wrong thing. Yeah, yeah, that's a good point. So, you know, as a leader, do you think, is there someone, a, a person in your life who's had a, maybe a really big impact on your leadership development? Maybe there have been several. That is? Two, I, two I already mentioned. One was my dad, the guy who said make the calls, and the other one was uh, Mr. Kim, my judo instructor, who uh, turned that situation around with the two cops that were going to give him a ticket. He was he was just, uh, in, in fact, in his later years, he developed a heart condition, and uh, it required a total heart transplant. And two months after he had the heart transplant, 
he was back on the judo mat teaching again. So if that doesn't show perseverance, I, I don't know what does. Yeah, and you're the uh, second person on the show today to mention that their father was uh, someone who really impacted their leadership style. Dave talked yep. about how it kind of was an opposite for him, that he saw the errors that his dad made in not taking chances. You know, I heard Dave say that, and I was kind of surprised, because when he said that, I was thinking to myself, geez, you know, I learned so much from my dad on the on the good side. Mm -hmm. You know, there were some mistakes he made. You know, I, I think he, he made a good point. You know, even even a bad example can help you, because you can see what not to do. Mm -hmm. Dave gave us some great uh, suggestions for uh, books to be reading, and you mentioned one earlier, but uh, what what are you reading right now? Well, I knew you were going to ask me that question, so I kind of laid out the books on my table here, and they they range from fiction to nonfiction, mostly mostly nonfiction. I think you know business people tend to like to read stuff about companies and about uh, successful people. We just had a guest speaker at our uh, ABL group, Adaptive Business Leaders, last month that I thought was outstanding. Her name was uh, Andrea Cates. She's a strategist, and she wrote a book called Find Your Next, N-E-X-T, Next. And, uh, you know, it's basically how you look at a company and come up with a strategy not based on that industry. A good example would be like Southwest Airlines, which we know is one of the few successful airlines right now. And one of the things that makes them successful is the way they board the planes and the way they get the planes out on time when uh, Karcher who uh, was running that company, wanted to come up with a plan to turn those planes around. He didn't go to the other airlines. He figured, why look at them? None of them are doing a good job. He went to NASCAR and looked at the pit stops, and looked at the way they did the uh, cars as they came in and how fast they were able to fuel them and get a, change a tire, do all this stuff. And, he, and, and his whole approach to turning the planes around and keeping an on-time schedule is much more based on NASCAR than it is on his competitors. And I think that's, you know, what Andrea's book in a nutshell was talking about. To find the next, you look at other industries where somebody has been real successful, and you figure out how you can take that into your current environment and use that lesson. Oh, Want to hear some other books I'm reading? Go ahead. Reading a book called Strength in Numbers. This is a uh, autobiography by a guy named Joe Walters who served in Vietnam and lost uh, one of his legs. And he went on to become a judo champion with one leg. And he talks about how his uh, fortitude goes back to his father and the time he was in Vietnam. And it's just an inspiring story uh, for anyone who says they have a rough time. You read this book and you'll see what a real rough time is about and, and probably put things in perspective. And sometimes a good book like that is very important. So I, I have a couple books that I that I constantly refer to on judo. I try not to become a judo instructor on this call, but you know, <laughs> judo to me is uh, much more than what most people expect. It's 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 a way. It's it's a philosophy to guide you to become a better person. And one of the books I'm reading is about the founder of judo. He was a modernist. He lived in the late part of the 18th century. When he put judo together, actually, actually in 1882, he was modernizing uh, Japan's uh, samurai warfare so that it could fit into the uh, Western society and take the best of both worlds. And uh, very interesting. I mean, his, his best friend was uh, John Dewey of the Dewey Decimal System, believe it or not. 
what he what he did was you know modernize something old and take the best parts out of it and i think there's a lesson learned there for for all of us well you've given us some fascinating things to think about today gary uh, certainly, if anyone was ever interested in judo, you may have your passion certainly has come through, and they may be uh, looking a little further. And you've given us some great suggestions on books, as well as some takeaways from a leadership standpoint. I think the stick to itiveness and making the calls, networking, uh, and and so on. I think we're, we're you know what, Chris. Before you 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 hang up on me, there was one more point on my list that I thought is a good one. All right, let's hear it. And and this goes back to your business in the, uh, you know, background screening arena, and that's how you treat your employees. Uh, I read a book called Managing to Keep the Customer, and again, I'll save your readers all the time of having to go out, find a book, and read it. The bottom line of the book was how you treat your employees translates directly to how they treat your customers. So treating your employees well is, it, like Dave said when he was talking, is imperative to successful service businesses especially. Well, I, I certainly hope that that definitely, that correlation is there because uh, I'm sure as you know, we were named as one of the top places to work in Orange County. So I hope that means we have one of the best customer service staffs in Orange County then by simple deduction there. So anyways, Gary, thank you so much for being my guest today. My last question is how can people get a hold of you if they're interested in learning more? You know what? I put together a website for my business, for my judo, and my classic car. Which again, I won't, I won't, I won't go off on that tangent. But if they just go to GaryGoltz.com, they can find out everything they want about me and, and stuff they don't even want to know. Well, that's wonderful. So that's about all the time we have for today. Thank you to my special guests, Dave Burgess and Gary Goltz. Tune in next week at the same time, 1 p.m. Pacific Standard Time, for Talent Talk. Brought to you by People G2. Next week, we will have Hong Bu and Nina Reese. Hong is a serial entrepreneur and has a new product. He's worked with Apple and Amazon. And Nina is an employment attorney, so she will certainly have some great information on how to deal with talent. Until then, do what you love and show the world how talented you can be today. You've been listening to Talent Talk Radio Show, brought to you by People G2, a company dedicated to helping you with all your people-related decisions.